Gonna have a real good time together We're gonna have a real good time together We're gonna laugh the child together Have a real good time together Welcome back to Jokerman. Uh, it's the podcast about Lou Reed and John Cale and the Velvet Underground and Bob Dylan once upon a time. It once was that, but now it is not. <laughs> I'm Evan. I'm Ian. And today we're joined by a fantastic guest, someone that I was hoping that we would be able to like work our way up to over the next like 12 to 18 months as we do this show. And uh, the, wouldn't you know it, thanks to our new friend, Michael Imperioli, uh, he's, he's here joining us today for a, uh, a fantastic record that uh, we're going to have a lot of fun talking about, I'm sure. Uh, it's the great Anthony DeCurtis. Anthony, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's uh, pleasure is all ours. We could not ask for anyone better to talk about um, this record <laughs> with uh, than um, than uh, Lou's like biographer and from what I understand, at least one of his one of the few kind of uh, uh, critics and and thinkers uh, in the rock music world that Lou was really kind of uh, simpatico with, kind of on the same level with. But maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. Um, sure. You know, I think Lou and I got along. Uh, you know, it was, uh, and, you know, I mean, that meant a great deal to me. I think, um, you know, I think there were a variety of reasons for that. Um, one is, you know, uh, I mean, I grew up in Greenwich Village. I'm a New Yorker. I mean, I pretty much got all the references in, you know, lose life and work and conversation actually you know i think lou probably you know wouldn't be too quick to admit this but you know i think the fact that i have a phd in literature meant something mm -hmm. to him you know i think that kind of um, experience and knowledge was something that he valued you know, Lou would talk about graduating with honors from the English department at Syracuse, you know, <laughs> this kind of stuff. And uh, so the fact that I had that kind of background, I think, meant something to him. Yeah, I wrote well about him. And, uh, you know, I believed in what he did. You know, I think sure. there was, um, you know, and I think he could sense that, you know, I, I, you know, it never was lost on me when I was around him, you know, that, I, you know, I felt like he was one of the most important songwriters of the 20th century without any doubt. No and, question. you know, I think, uh, I think he liked that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he also deserved it. Yeah. Yeah. The education aspect of things, I think, is really interesting. I've been, uh, Evan and I both have been going through your biography of Lou along with the show. Uh, for listeners out there, that's Lou Reed, A Life by Anthony DeCurtis, available now in paperback. 
Um, and in, there's a couple chapters here related to metal machine music, which is what we're uh, talking about today, or you know, kind of set in that era. There is one sure. really focused on metal machine music, but there's a few, uh, you know, kind of exploring '74 to '76-ish, which I think yes. we we'll kind of touch on here today. That was and a you, key era for him. It yeah. seems like it, yeah. And you mentioned uh, there's a couple of quotes I think in the book where like um, uh, there's a section I think when you start talking about his second wife Sylvia. Yeah. Or like the the education aspect of this, like he he made a joke or something about like how he he was probably smarter than her, um, but he had some sort of like um, uh, respect or degree of understanding of her as you know someone who was intelligent, um, yes. uh, that he could kind of you know vibe with for lack of a better term, which is interesting to think about you know when Lou is uh, obviously represented as you know kind of a. a, a uh, the patron saint of the day class a, you know, a, a gutter punk, uh, so to speak. And yet at the same time, he, he seemed to play such a high kind of um, uh, emphasis on, you know, intelligent people uh, who, who knew their shit, basically. When he's talking to Sylvia, you, you remark on like the only reason he would bring up that he's smarter than her is because he feels like that's part of the conversation that she's smart, you know, that she's somebody who he can um, relate to on that level. Um, and so his relationship with, with you and with, with others, he respected, it seems like he was somebody who was really all about ideas. Yeah. You know, look, I think that there are aspects of Lou that, um, often get overlooked or go underappreciated. And Mm -hmm. one of them is this, you know, he, he valued, um, you know, he had fairly traditional standards. I mean, for somebody who's, interests as a writer and a songwriter uh, were so far out. Um, you know, the kind of respect that he was looking for was very traditional in a certain way. I mean, I remember Bill Bentley telling me, you know, Bill kind of worked as, you know, Lou's, um, you know, publicist for a while and was very close with him. And when Lou published, um, his first collection of lyrics between thought and expression, you know, he went around to bookstores and gave kind of readings and, you know, occasionally, you know, was signing books and talking to fans. And, and Bill told me a story about, you know, Lou coming backstage after one of those events and crying because he was so moved that people were talking to him as a writer, you know, um, that is something I think that really meant a lot to him, you know, and Lou was not somebody who cried in front of other people. <laughs> right. Does not, does not seem like typical behavior that you would expect. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that's something that, uh, you know, even rock critics who, who like him, you know, just like, oh, he's wild, you know, this kind of stuff. And, Fair enough. I mean, a lot of the writing is, you know, pretty scarifying. But, um, you know, Lou over and over and over again talked about, you know, if I were writing novels or if I were writing plays, no one would bat an eye about what I was doing. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, Ginsburg has done it. Burroughs has done it. Uh, You know, it's just I'm trying to do it in rock and roll. He wanted people to think of rock and roll as a kind of literature. Right. And that's, you know, 
it's kind of right up my street. I mean, I was explaining <laughs> us too. Street. I think uh, we we really like that too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other day, uh, you know, I was telling someone, you know, when I was starting out, probably the most typical remark I would get from editors is, "Oh, you know, this is great, but you know, can you say something about the music?" You know, I was just so focused on the words, you know, and. Um, you know, that's a mistake and I'm not especially proud of that, but, uh, you know, that, that, that focus on the literary aspect of, of what like Lou's songs are or Dylan's or, you know, any, any of the number of people we can talk about. Um, yeah, that's very important to me and it absolutely was important to him. Totally. Well, thank God that we're talking about one of his most dense uh, lyrical records <laughs> today. That's you know, an album that has so much to divulge. We, we could get so deep into the meaning of, of the text here. Uh, um, but of course, uh, I'm being uh, silly. We're, because metal machine music, it strikes me, and I think the way you frame it in um, your book, is that it kind of represents... Um, a, a symbolic juncture in his career where he was kind of uh, working against his own interests on purpose or yep. um, in some ways it's, it's a really complex moment because the only way to really grapple with it was on the terms of like a meta level of, of what's he doing here as an artist. Like mm -hmm. why is he doing this stunt it was kind of looked at and it seemed like yeah. he was a little bit unsure even um if it was how much he wanted to take it seriously he went back and forth on that and that's yeah. something that we've been talking about lately because we've been going chronologically and we just were at sally can't dance which you know placing the record in time comes out 74 yeah a rec and right before that is berlin this is a crazy three album trajectory. <laughs> like I can't even, I have to stress that that's like a wild three records. Uh, but you know, out. you do have to remember like between Berlin and Sally Can't Dance was a rock and roll animal. Right. Right. And that live record. was very important record for him. You know, I mean, it's so interesting because it was huge and it, and it really expanded his audience. I mean, I remember hearing that record on the radio, you know, um, which was rare for Lou Reed <laughs> records. Um, I think partly because of its success, you know, Lou often went out of his way to disparage it subsequently, but also said to me, you know, he thought it was the best live record ever made. You know? <laughs> Sounds it's like Lou. That, that kind of, yeah, that kind of ambivalence, if you want to even call it that, or, um, you know, going back and forth about uh, the meaning, success, impact, importance of any gesture that he made in his career uh, was really very much a part of who he was. Mm -hmm. And uh, but you know, the success of Rock and Roll Animal was crucial. You know, I think you know it ex it exposed a lot of younger fans to the Velvet Underground because you know there were you know, a few Velvet Underground songs on there. And, um, you know, it was very much a part, you know, Lou, <laughs> so like the Eagles, like the Allman Brothers, you know, kind of created this album of, you know, 
you know, twin guitar pyrotechnics. It's you know? insane. It's, it's so funny that for so many people in 1973, 74, their first dose of the Velvet Underground was Sweet Jane and Heroin sounding like that. Just like could not be further from where they were as an actual band. Um, um, absolutely. But, you know, Lou did that very consciously. Right. You know, well, it's so strange that there's these periods now that we're getting into really the meat of his solo career. And I think we're starting to see that he's readdressing the certain qualities and moments of uh, his, his earlier days, but like, um, or re- revisiting them. Um, so those songs and, and the sort of uh, the pop sensibility is being stretched as far as it can go. Um, the storytelling thing on Berlin is going as far as that it can go at that time. And yeah. here with, with metal machine music, if we want to just officially start talking about the record, uh, which is funny cause we, we usually use a little <laughs> clip of it as our intro to talk about other records. Like here we can just drop a, a, a longer clip. Yeah. <laughs> 16 um, minutes, the whole side. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> It's him revisiting, um, in some ways, that squalor and chaos of the earliest Velvet Underground recordings. Yeah. Um, he talked about that. You know, he said, you know, when we would finish a Velvet Underground set, you know, often we would just leave our guitars on stage feeding back. And, you know, that's what this is. Um, I mean, metal machine music is still an impossibly bold gesture. You know, I mean, I, yes. you know, one of the, why the record company put it out is, you know, I, you know, it's kind of a function of the seventies in a funny way. Like, you know, like there is, everything was kind of changing, you know, movies were changing and, you know, maybe somebody just thought, well, you know, Maybe this will, maybe this right. is the next thing. You know? <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, it's it's so true. It's like it was molten ground still, and some executive probably was so completely confused by everything he saw that yeah. hearing this was like, oh, sure, I'm sure yeah, these sickos, I'm sure these fucking perverts would like this too. <laughs> this is what the uh, kids sure. are into, I guess. Might as okay. well. Put- <laughs> and plus, on top of that, like, I mean, just packaging wise, like, you know, in, in 1975, you go to a record store, you don't necessarily get to listen to the record before you yep. buy it. Absolutely. It lo- he looks great on there. It's got a cool ass font. It says Lou cool Reed. title. Yeah. It's just yep. like, you know, if I saw that record and I didn't know what it sounded like and I was, you know, I had new rock and roll animal, I'd be like, all right, this this looks pretty badass. I'll buy it. I think it was it was absolutely positioned from. Uh, a visual standpoint as the successor to rock and roll animal. I yeah. mean, 
anybody who saw that in the store would have assumed that, you know, rock and roll animal, metal machine music, you know, that, you know, you could, you know, whatever that subhead, you know, um, an experimental something, whatever, you know, I think, I don't think anybody, I mean, I, I may well have learned about it while I was researching a book. I mean, it was something I never paid attention to. An electronic, uh, what, what does it say on the, on the title? The, the subtitle is it's very electronic. small for me to read. Yeah, it's a little difficult to figure it out. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. But um, yeah, it's... Experimentation uh, or experiment is in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, how, how, many, how, how many times have you listened to Metal Machine Music, Anthony? <laughs> I would say probably, well, I listened to it today. Yeah. Uh, and I would say uh, maybe a half dozen times. Right. You know, I obviously listened to it when I wrote the book. Uh, when it was reissued, I was asked to review it at, you know, one of the many now defunct music magazines. And uh, I listened to it then. I listened to it when it came out. You know, look, you can make a case for it, you know. Totally. Um, in a funny way, I kind of like the CD version the best because it just flows right through. You know, like they, the breaks kind of disrupt the effect to mm-hmm. me. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't even uh, think about that. There is an element of, um, you know, it's like, you know, it's the classic thing that, you know, everyone says about minimalism and it's sort of like you either like it or you don't, you know, like, right. which is, you know, there's more variation within it than you initially believe, you know, and I, if you are listening to it, you could hear sounds coming in and out of it. And, you know, if it just annoys you, all you're hearing is noise, you know, mm-hmm. but if, you know, you're trying to pay some attention there are textures to it. People, I mean, I don't, I can't claim to know very much about avant-garde classical music, but people who do, uh, you know, claim that, you know, there's almost what you might call a a tradition of music like this. Right. Obviously, people who got interested in industrial music uh, made great claims for uh, metal machine music as a, a kind of almost foundational document. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's so funny. I mean, to, because that that's the case, that um, Lou Reed does this one record where that is sort of the, the you know, you could be, uh, you could call it a gimmick if you're being uncharitable, or you could call it you know, a bold and a brave um, creative choice to make this record. And he, I think, making this one album got more credit for inspiring the avant-garde than John Cale ever did, even though that was his like, <laughs> well, exactly. entire reason for living. So <laughs> and I'm sure like, it must have driven Cale out of his mind. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Referencing fucking, you know, uh, oh, Cale's great mentor. You Lamont know, Young. Lamont Young, yeah. yeah. Right. Like every single thing where it's like, you know, I'm quite sure. I mean, I, I can't say this for certain, but you know that Lou learned about Lamont Young from John Cale. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, 
but yes, that's absolutely the case. You know, well, you you also bring up in your book that he inadvertently, you know, this was during the time of the punk movement, um, or just punk aesthetics and sensibilities kind of taking off, and by doing this, he uh, Lou, whether he meant to or not, also completely um, lapped them. Um, absolutely, and and ne- never was caught up to. He got away with murder. <laughs> no, without a doubt. I mean, it was the first time in Lou's career where, you know, um, you know, he was in danger of being outflanked on the left. Right. Punk was coming up. And, you know, and he was, you know, regarded as, a, I don't know what, the godfather of punk. But still, like, that almost implies, you know, a kind of older, revered figure. And yeah, past his prime. Yeah, well, uh, how old was he? He was like, well, he was um, 34, something like that, yeah, right? Exactly. Well, uh, that yeah. was the era. I mean, I remember one time I was interviewing um, Bruce Springsteen, mm-hmm. and I was talking to Bruce about, you know, being labeled the new Dylan. And he goes, you know, when um, people were talking about me as the new Dylan, the old Dylan was 33, (laughs) you know, and that was very much um, something that was in the air during that period. You know, this sense of, you know, can you make rock and roll when you're uh, in your thirties? Right. You know, let alone God knows, you know, now in your seventies, but seventies and (laughs) eighties. Yeah. Like it, 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 now the question is, can you do it in your nineties though? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, that was very much, I mean, that was very real. Yeah, it was un, unproven. We talked yeah. about a, a bunch about this on, you know, we did two years, 200 episodes on Bob, you know, before yeah. we, we switched over to the Velvets and, and Lou and John. And, um, I mean, that 74 to 78 era for Bob, Planet Waves, uh, Blood, Desire, up to Street Legal, you know, like he's he's moving through so many different kind of micro directions just every yes. couple months and just trying to, like, trying to stay vital and ahead of the curve and, and figure out where his place is in this radically different kind of musical landscape than he had come up in just a decade prior. And, you know, obviously I think we, we have pretty fond, uh, you know, kind of opinions of, of pretty much all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the time, you know, by the time he gets to street legal in 78, you know, he, he seems like a, you know, an old codger, just like hopelessly out of date, just completely yeah. off the map, not anywhere near the cutting edge of what was going on you know, in, in New York, um, uh, in particular, you know, the, the, the downtown scene at that time. And Lou, I think just with this one record alone, basically buys himself, I don't know, so much five, time. Yeah, yeah, five years of goodwill. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously goes on to spend it on things like Coney Island baby and, uh, rock and roll hearts. Yeah. Uh, you cash <laughs> in on, on your <laughs> sweetest records yet after you just do like something that burns the house down yeah you get to be a a little uh, a little sweetheart after this sounds glib in a certain way to say it, but um, 
you know, you don't want to minimize the impact of uh, drugs in terms of making a record like mm-hmm. metal music. You know, he put, you know, you know, I mean, that sort of references the chemical makeup of Benzedrine on the album. <laughs> you know, there was, you know, Lou was at a moment in his life where, you know, uh, certainly to that point, there were a number of them, but it was, you know, his life was, um, you know, seeming a little out of control, Seem you know, and, he was having a hard time, <laughs> uh, you know, and, you know, there is a fact of, you know, okay, some of them were live records, whatnot, but, you know, he put out seven records in three years, right? you know, and I think he sort of had it, you know, he didn't like that, you know, you know, we hadn't yet arrived at the point where, you know, someone who was considered an artist would, you know, get three years to make a record, mm-hmm. you know, like Lou was a moneymaker at that point, you know, uh, you know, it's not one of his greatest records, but, um, Sally can't dance. Sally can't dance. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was in well. the top 10 for the only time. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, rock and roll animal had done well. Right. You know, and so they wanted, you know, product from him. You know, there wasn't this kind of sense of like, you've done well. Okay. Now, you know, go take two years off. It was get back to work. Yeah. Just keep them, keep them coming. Rock and roll. And he lives in a really weird paradoxical space during this time, especially because rock and roll as he defines it is not what rock and roll as the masses understand it to be. And it's rapidly shifting to become the version that he wants it to be the version of rock and roll. That's like literary and, um, and adult. And so there's this weird friction. It seems between the old world where rock and roll, he's just like, come on, you're a rock and roll guy. Bang out some tunes. Yeah. Do just make a record, go in and make a record because, and we'll give you a lot of money to do it. And there, there's like, you can see the point like where the, the old ideas are starting to kind of erode and fall away. And the people at the top don't see that yet necessarily. I think they're kind of like diverging at this moment in time. Like, I don't, I don't think that the, like the, the uh, commercial form of rock and roll is like going away necessarily, but like in the mid sixties, you know, Bob and the Beatles, for instance, like the most artistically fulfilling and solid music is also the most commercially popular and successful music. Right. And by the time you get to like the no wave scene in 1979, 80, Mm. like the cutting edge artistic, you know, kind of rock and roll, if you want to call it that music, uh, has virtually zero commercial prospects. Um, and the most uh, successful commercial music, um, you know, in 77, call it Hotel California or something, has virtually zero artistic credibility, uh, at least amongst the kind of, uh, you know, avant-garde um, uh, that, that Lou obviously was kind of familiar with. Um, and, and it really does kind of seem like 1975, I, I just there's something about Metal Machine music and Blood on the Tracks both coming out in that same year, in the middle of the '70s, that seems just like this, this like this suture point, this like kind of point of of uh, of departure from what came before versus what would come after. Um, I don't know. It's just such a it's such a, a vibrant, vivid kind of moment in time. It's also a moment where you you're 
there's a still a kind of freedom you know you're still free to kind of do whatever you want in a, in a funny way you know the music industry is beginning to understand how much money can be made right they're beginning to really put together the formula that would govern say the 80s and in into the 90s you know mm. these records that would sell 10 15 20 million copies you know, on, on their first album, you know, you know, Hootie and the Blowfish, you know, Alf <laughs> Morris said, yeah. you know, like they would just, she couldn't keep track, you know, just now we, now is when we drop the single. Now is when we drop the video. Now is when we do yeah. the magazine cover. Now is when we, you know, an album is having seven singles, this kind of stuff. That formula had not at all solidified in 1975, but it was mm. beginning to. You know, they're still testing out, you know, a little bit of this was popular, but if we combine it with a little bit of that, then, yeah, you know, these, these, you know, Fleetwood Mac or the, or the Eagles or Steely Dan for that matter. Sure. Beginning to come on the scene, you know, making these, you know, kind of perfect records in a way, Um, you know, and, and that would sell and could be sold. Whereas, um, you know, you were beginning to get this split, you know, I mean, punk was a reaction, obviously, to a lot of that stuff. Right. And, you know, there was, um, in the sense that comes straight out of the Velvet Underground, I mean, until the Velvet Underground, you know, if you were a rock band and you weren't having hits, that didn't make any fucking sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, there was no, well, we're going to appeal to posterity and in 20 years people are going to think this is good. It's like, fuck that. You right. know, like, and, but, you know, the Velvet Underground were the first band like that. And then, you know, in a certain way with punk, I mean, so many bands were like that. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, a number of them went on to be pretty popular. I mean, talking guys and Patti Smith and Elvis Costello and whoever else. Um, and Bruce Springsteen uh, kind of coming in and taking this spot. That, yeah. He's kind of the close. Bruce is kind of the closest thing to that, like kind of 60s style of things that I mentioned, like where, you know, it, it, it is both like commercially successful. Obviously, by the time he gets to born in the USA, he's the biggest rock star on the planet. But at the same time, he's got, you know, he has bulletproof kind of credibility as an artist. Yes. Yeah. You know. I remember, you know, I was living in Atlanta in the 80s, in the early 80s. And um, I remember, uh, you know, the local Columbia guy when Nebraska came out. Yeah. You know, Nebraska followed um, the river. The river. And, you know, there were a lot of expectations. And I remember a friend of mine asked, you know, the Columbia guy, oh, you know, what is the new Bruce record? It was like, he just goes, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, so the sensibility is beginning to kind of set in like you're Bruce Springsteen, like you make big records, you know, that's what we want people to do. You know, now nobody would say that to Bruce to his face, Sure. you know, but um, you know, that this is where things were kind of heading in a, in a certain way, you know, there still was, you know, I mean, we're, maybe going far afield here, but like, you know, in the early days, there still was a kind of, you know, semi underground, you know, like REM 
took you know yeah. five or six records before they had a, even a gold record you know right. uh uh but they were kind of quote unquote big you know they'd get written about and people would go see them you know and and you know they were you know they were successful uh, at their own level um but you know eventually that level kind of disappeared you know uh you know before the it's like the you know disappearance of the mid-budget film yeah the middle the middle class days, rock and roll know. band not There's the uh, the one percent, uh, but neither the uh, yeah. you know, the No, I mean, like if you think about somebody like you know, all right, um, you know, thinking about Jackson Brown, you know, something like uh, Running on Empty was sure. a, a pretty successful record. But Jackson mm-hmm. Brown's other records, you know, sold you know three hundred thousand copies. Now, you know, if you're the Ramones, and maybe not even well, the Ramones maybe sold more than that at one point or another, but. You know, if you're some punk band starting out, 300,000 sounds insane. But, you know, you're not, you know, you don't have houses on every continent if you're selling (laughs) 300,000. That guy who said Nebraska sucks, like, it's, it makes me laugh because it's not even a guy saying that. That's not one guy saying that. That's like just this, that is what someone would say who cares about the the lines on the charts like that is not really an, an opinion you can have you no, know it's not yeah, that right. it sucks it's that it's it's not bar you know not going up it's not i up. have to go yeah i have to go like try to get record stores to stock this record and how the fuck am i supposed to do that yeah how am yeah. i to convince someone to play state trooper on on fm radio <laughs> yeah, right exactly like but, yeah, that's all he was thinking about, and like, uh, what is my bonus going to be at the end of the year? These fucking guys. Ain't somebody out there listening to my last prayer? High old silver oil delivered me from nowhere. Oh! Something that really moved me recently was it was Andy Warhol's birthday and I was looking around at clips and, and watching clips of Lou talking about Andy. And there's this one that uh, I was really moved by where he talks about um, he's being interviewed and, and he's talking about the freedom that the Velvet Underground were afforded uh, in the studio and that they were allowed to just let the, the songs were pressed as they were recorded. Nothing was changed. Nothing was fiddled with because Andy Warhol said, it's great. It's good. Don't touch it. Yeah. And, and the, the interviewer says, you know, so he was a catalyst and Lou very, uh, with finality says he was a protector. And it's like this thing of, just whatever success someone like Lou got and all the influence that he had, it comes, I think in large part because someone in Andy's Andy Warhol's unique position of being a moneyed artist, like an artist who has all this capital behind him um, was he pry it open some kind of portal and like let this stuff through Um and that that wouldn't have happened. I think the natural thing is for these shark-like people who 
say that Nebraska, you know, sucks like that. They usually run the show and they were the ones who would bar the Velvet Underground from existing. Right. It's like sometimes somebody it's like a good guy with a gun. Like sometimes there's a rich (laughs) artist who who actually uses their position in a way that's like for for good. Well, you know, when I was a kid growing up in New York, um, Andy Warhol was in the newspapers every single day. Like when I was a kid, my father bought, I mean, he didn't read the Times, but he bought the Daily News. He bought the New York Post. He bought the Journal American. You know, like we had all these newspapers around the house and Warhol was in them all the time. You know, he was, you know, part of it was like, you know, he's the Brillo soap pad guy or he's the Campbell soup guy. But, you know, he also was just well known and he let that all play out. But it gave him a kind of cultural capital where um, it enabled him to, yeah, like if he, you know, if he wanted to make a movie, you know, he can make a movie. He wanted to, I mean, not Hollywood movie, but, you know, get a movie that would be shown in like RD theaters, you know, and, you know, to get like a label to sign a band like the Velvet Underground, you know, but I have to say, you know, the fact that Warhol was involved with the Velvet Underground was a kind of blessing and a curse, which I think ultimately why Lou got rid of it, you know, like to me as a rock and roll kid, you know, in my early teens, around the time that that record came out. And I was going to record stores all the time. I grew up in Greenwich Village. I was haunting record stores. And, you know, when I saw this record with a banana on the cover and I fucking smoked banana peels and all that other bullshit (laughs) ridiculous kids did um, because it was, like, supposed to get you high or whatever. And, like, I thought, like, Andy Warhol is kind of a joke, like, like, this isn't real rock and roll. Like, right. this is. And so, you know, I, my first inclination was to sort of dismiss it, you know. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, for Jacqueline Kennedy to go down to the fucking Dom to see the Velvet Underground, you know, that wasn't her first inclination, you know. <laughs> but, you know, again, as a rock and roll kid, it was listening, you know, to the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Who and, you know, all of Sax and Motown and all that other stuff and just consuming as much of it as I could. I hated anything that seemed to me to be making fun of it, you know, and Warhol seemed like that, you know. I I, I didn't, you know, obviously when I heard the record, I felt differently, you know, and was totally impressed. But but it put me off initially. It's because you were cool. You you were a cool kid, though, that, which is like <laughs> who it didn't work on. But I mean, the thing that is so that something I was thinking about, like this exact thing about the cover and that feeling of, oh, it's Andy Warhol slapping his fucking name on this album. Completely. And it doesn't even say the Velvet Underground. But I was no. thinking about it in light of that, that clip where Lou calls him a protector. And I was actually really moved because I was thinking about how I'm starting to believe that Andy Warhol did that because he thought it would be the best chance that this, that it would help them get into people's homes, like into, into people's uh, onto the radio. Maybe, you know, it, it was like, if it says my name, 
maybe somebody who would never buy this, maybe some executive will say, okay, maybe somebody will give it to somebody. And I think he understood that. And I think he was right ultimately, but for the people who knew, like for you, uh, you know, who you didn't need that message, you know, you didn't need a Trojan horse, but I think that he was, it was a thing where he was trying to, help them as much oh, look, as look without a doubt it helped with the record company there's no fucking doubt about that right you know and yeah warhol's name on the cover was definitely a sales pitch you know because you know i think they thought for whatever reason probably correctly that most people wouldn't give a fuck about you know was he making fun of them rock and roll or whatever you know it's just oh andy warhol did this thing you know um and plus like they wanted to be cool you know i mean these people were all living in new york and they all you know if they did some project with andy warhol you know that had a certain cachet totally you know? i mean i wonder i mean it would be really very interesting to track down everybody who was involved in that record coming out and find trying to find out did you think this was good you know, did you, you know, like, did you think it was important or a statement or whatever else? Or did you just think, well, you know, this is like Andy Warhol's latest gambit, like going to see, you know, Women in Revolt or something, right. you know, I mean, those movies are pretty interesting, actually. But, uh, you know, it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, it's a totally different kind of thing. You know, and it's not... You know, if you were going to see, you know, whatever happened to Baby Jane, you know, you probably wouldn't like it. <laughs> Although maybe you would, if you, you know, the kind of whatever gay sensibility that whatever happened to Baby Jane might that's, feel. That's a good movie. Um, I've been I've been reading John's um, like art art book slash autobiography at the same time in tandem with uh, with uh, a life uh, as we've kind of been going through both of their discographies together and um and john had a, a similar kind of take on andy to you uh anthony he he mentions at one point how like from afar before he had gotten sucked into you know the whole factory scene yes. and um and that kind of orbit like he he kind of thought andy warhol was like sort of a faker and a poser and a cornball um and and he takes pains very quickly to say like once i got in there and i met the guy and i saw what he was about and what was going on i very quickly you know, I, I, I knew that that was not the case, and I, you know, yeah. it came to he came to be one of the most important kind of uh, artistic, um, uh, you know, references or, or guides in his entire life. But uh, even you know, even a guy as cutting edge and cool and knows his shit as John Cale in 1965, you know, had his had his reservations, had his suspicions about what Warhol really meant um, and his uh, bona fides as you know an actual you know artist with a capital A. No, and I think Lou. Lou did it, I think. I don't think Lou was thinking like, oh, God, he's a very important artist. I think Lou thought he'll get us a record contract. Sure. I mean, I think Lou was very pragmatic in that way. He seems to have later to have really been... to. He said things that make me think he was impressed by his... by Warhol. Like in Songs for Drilla, it seems oh. like later on he realized... What was he was like? I miss that. Like there was so much creativity and all these ideas that Warhol had. That, but yeah, at the time it was probably a bit more like just 
mercenary. Mercenary, totally. Yeah, and you know, I don't think one necessarily discounts the other. I mean, Lou was smart enough to know that Warhol was important, mm-hmm. but you know, Lou was very ambitious. You know, and uh, you know, to the degree that Warhol like remained kind of hovering over the band, not necessarily of his own, um, you know, his own desire, but. You know, certainly in people's minds. Just as yeah, connoted with them. Yeah, I think that was when Lou decided, okay, this is over. Yeah. And I think as with so many things, again, you know, as we were saying about metal machine music, uh, you know, Lou went back and forth on Andy his whole life. You know, if you look at Andy Warhol's diaries, you know, it's like, God, it was at the MTV Awards, you know, the other night. And like Lou didn't even come over and say hello. You know, mm-hmm. he was sitting two rows away from me. And, you know, this kind of stuff. And, you know, Lou you know, won't ask me to direct a video for him. You know, like, you know, there was, like, Lou was wary of Warhol, you know. Um, but, you know, he also defended him. Like, whenever anybody would, you know, defend, like, Valerie Solanas or the the, guy, or the woman who shot Warhol, like, oh, yeah, Lou would just lose his mind. Yeah, as uh, as Michael recounted to us in his yeah. uh, when he spoke to him on uh, a couple weeks ago. I, I sort of shifting gears, but also kind of uh, along the same lines, just to return a little more towards the metal machine music era of things. <laughs> um, one um, one uh, presence, I think, in this moment in time in Lou's life, and, and you spend a lot of time in your book focusing on her for several chapters, actually, um, around you know metal machine music, both before it, during it, after it, is, uh, is Rachel. Yes. Uh, who he was with at this moment in time. And that, again, like thinking about this moment, you know, 1975 is this sort of like this this um, fateful, like event horizon kind of moment in Lou's career where he just like kind of goes beyond um, and, and kind of fully commits to to the direction that he ends up following for the rest of his life. Um, I feel like Rachel's presence is very, is like, is, a, is like that's an essential element, it's an essential component to that. Um, and she's been so sort of, you know, even even in your book, Anthony, like she she kind of just sort of floats in and then like very like quietly departs. And, you know, there's just sort of a very basic coda like, you know, that Lou never saw her again after 1976 and she died in 1990 or something. So like if you have any sort of uh, insight into what that relationship was like, how her presence might have affected this record and just kind of where he was at mentally, emotionally. You know, living with a transsexual was a very daring act for a rock star. You know, at that point, I mean, just, you know, saying you're gay. You know, I mean, that was a thing in England. You know, David Bowie said it, although later he called himself a closet heterosexual. But, you know, <laughs> well, you know, Bowie would give interviews talking about being gay. And Lou gave interviews talking about being gay. You know, and... There was a, you know, there were five, there was five minutes there where you could, um, where you could sort of get away with that, you know, um, 
it, it just seemed like, okay, you know, gay people, that's the next thing, you know, right. okay, we had civil rights and okay, the black people, that's cool. You know, then women, great, you know, okay, now gay people, sure. You know, there was, it, it just seemed to be rolling right along, but it still was daring to be with, um, you know, a transsexual without a doubt. And they were open, you know, as far as like Rachel's life, you know, it's hard to find out very much about it. Um, right. other than, you know, the information came forward that, you know, she died in an AIDS hospital here in New York. You know, the question that was never asked, and certainly Lou never spoke about it. I mean, anybody who I asked who knew Lou, you know, did he ever talk about Rachel? Even people who knew Rachel were always, he always just said, you know, just stay away from that. You know, Rachel was kind of a street character. It was one of the senses I got, you know, um, you know, would steal stuff and, you know, threaten to stab people and things mm. like that. You know, Lou beat her all the time <laughs> from accounts that I've heard, you know, uh, but on the other hand, also was very caring toward her, you know. You know who has a lot of stuff about this, or has, unfortunately, he died, is Mick Rock. Mick Rock had photographs. And, right. and, you know, I asked him, you know, look, I mean, can I see any of that stuff? Or would you show me? Or tell me <laughs> how, you know, I just, so I don't know whatever happens to that right. now. But, you know, that was a world that, that Lou moved in. And I think the kind of extremity, you know, without being too sort of glib about it, you can map on to making a record like metal machine music, which sure. you just have no boundaries. You know, you're just going to do what you want to do. And, you know, whether that's driven by meth or driven by a kind of artistic vision or driven by, a certain type of sexual desire or all of the above, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know where that information resides. Right. Yeah, I mean, you're going every night to see people getting fisted. Uh, yep. you, you might not be <laughs> so concerned about what they think of your, uh, ambient noise. Yeah, record. 64 minute <laughs> wall of guitar <laughs> feedback. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just like, well, it's one more thing. And I think that that confidence, whether it was, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but there's a sort of um, stubbornness to Lou in his career that seems to, even in moments where he's ostensibly, he is kind of not doing great in some ways, it, it pulls him through. Like this period, the way you describe it in the book, it, he's staying up for days on end on uppers yeah like in a completely disoriented fog and uh you know probably not eating hardly anything um i've heard weird things about his food habits just like pints of ice cream upon pints of ice cream and not much <laughs> else and um i don't know if there's truth to that but uh he he i think gets out of or gets through these times by just uh kind of relentlessly finding the next uh, branch to swing on or I mean this moment is just like for him maybe it was just like 
I'll try this now, but it ended up being something that had huge reverberations. Uh, well, no pun intended. There was um, an element of Lou, you know, when you talk about Lou, and you know, I would find this, you know, when I was being interviewed a lot about him when the book came out, subsequently, you know, it, you end up confounding people because one of the tricks I had to contend with in writing this book was just not just bouncing back and forth, you know, like, you know, he thought this and then he thought that, and he was like this, but then he was like that. And, you know, I tried to find a kind of through line Mm. that made sense of all of those conflicting things. And I think that finally would pull Lou through and, you know, people don't like my saying this, you know, was there's a fairly kind of traditional aspect to him. You know, right. Um, And I think, you know, when after, you know, he knew what he was doing with with um, with metal machine music. He called it metal machine music. Yeah, like he didn't call it just like uh, you know unpronounceable title or like or like echoes or some bullshit. He, he, he made it call. Yeah, it, he, he really presents it in a way that's, you know, taking a page from, from the Warhol playbook in a way of that, like, you know, uh, commercial, he, he is, he knows, he, he knows what he's doing. I, I agree. And he goes back to RCA and, you know, the guy running RCA says to him, like, look, you know, I mean, we went through this bullshit with you and we'll do another <laughs> record, but none of this stuff anymore. And Lou just says, okay, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> sure, that's fine. You know, uh, we'll make legendary hearts and, you know, I'll go, you know, I'll go to Aristo with my friend Clive Davis and I'll make, you know, those records. But, you know, he eventually rebels against that. You know, he, he goes back and forth. And, you know, uh, you know, I was maybe being a little harsh about Lou's relationship with, um, you know, with uh, with Andy Warhol, but Lou learned a lot about Andy. I learned a lot from Andy. You know his attitude towards media. You know his attitude about um, creating a persona. Mm-hmm. You know all of that stuff is straight out of Warhol. It seems like Warhol was somebody who, and Andy, or Warhol was somebody who I think Lou also got this lesson which is like you can use the tools of the commercial world if you don't believe in them and still have that they can still work for you if you yeah. don't buy into them well and you know you can find your i mean i think another thing i mean one of the most interesting things uh you know when i was doing a lot of reading about Warhol when i was writing the book and you know somebody asked him like you know it was, you know, obviously Warhol could be sort of irritating and, you know, you know, somebody who, um, you know, just won't give a straight answer to anything. It's oh, it's great. You know, this kind of stuff. But somebody was at that, you know, like, well, why, um, why, you know, why the Coca-Cola bottle? Like what, you know, what are you doing with that? And, and Warhol just said, you know, think about Coca-Cola. It's, you know, the most famous product in the world. And, hugely successful everybody likes it and um he goes you know and the richest person in the world can't buy a better bottle of coca-cola than you can go down to the corner store and buy right like that's 
Yeah. An incredibly wow. interesting idea. Yeah. You know, no one else was saying stuff like that. You know, that, and that was yeah. fascinating. And that you could find art anywhere and that you could sort of quote unquote democratize art. You don't have to be, you know, go study in Florence for three years before you make a painting. You can paint the fucking Campbell soup can. Right. You know, like and that I mean, that's rock and roll, you know, like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, I mean that's incredible, really. You know, it's, and it's so um it's so obvious in some way that it, you know, it, it, it looks to, to somebody who's, who doesn't know that little bit of information, the, uh, the conceptual side of Warhol. I mean, it's, it's conceptual art and he, if you don't really know why he's doing it or hear those that, like amazing quote, for example, it'll just remain just that image. But, once you unlock that, there's so much more to why he was doing that. Um, there's a, even a song about it on Songs for Drella called Images, where he says, I think images are worth repeating, which I take to be a Warhol quote. Yeah. And uh, that that idea, like the, the, the Coca-Cola bottle idea, I think whether you know it or not informs all that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like... You know, because he was, you know, I was always, I was surprised to encounter that quote because, again, it's unlike him to explain in that way, you know, other than saying, oh, I just liked it. I mean, who doesn't like Coca Cola? Mm-hmm. You know, like, tastes good. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a devoted Coke Zero fan myself. But, <laughs> um, you know, it, um, that relationship between art and commerce. You know, that's one of the fun things about rock and roll. You know, one of the things that really drew me to it, you know, that you're you're somebody out there trying to sell records. You know, one of the things I always loved about Motown, you know, I went to this one singer-songwriter thing down at uh, the bottom line in Manhattan one time, and Barrett Strong, you know, one of the great Motown songwriters was there. And, you know, he was on there with, you know, you know, a bunch of like good songwriters, you know, one of the guys from the Blasters and, you know, people like that. And, you know, like, and, you know, the guy who was the moderator would say, you know, okay, you know, Mr. Guy from the Blasters, you know, why did you write the song you're going to play next? And it's always, you know, like, I went through this terrible heartache and breakup and, you know, you know, you'd get an outpouring of genuine emotion. And then the guy would play like a pretty good song, you know, and then they'd come to Barrett Strong and they would say, well, you know, um, you know, uh, the Temptations had released a couple of songs that hadn't gone to number one. And, you know, they wanted, you know, Barry wanted them to have, um, you know, wanted them to have like a ballad for their next song. So Barry came to me and said, uh, you know, write a song for the Temptations." So I wrote this. And it's, I wish it would rain. (laughs) Like the song is both more poetic and a gigantic number one hit. Like, and he didn't write it because he just had a breakup or, you know, whatever. He wrote it because he had an afternoon to write a song. And the fucking Temptations are probably sitting in the next room waiting for him to finish so they could go in and record it, you know? That's that's so interesting because the origin of heroin famously is 
it, he Lou wrote that song when he was tasked with writing surf songs. Yeah, when he was at Pickwick or, doing the ostrich so, and stuff yeah, like that. There's something very Warhol-y and just like keep bringing it back to that. I mean, it can't help it, but about the idea that this is gonna, this has got to be like maybe this. There's like something inspiring about the idea of wanting something to make money or to be successful in that way, like commercially successful. It leads in a, some way to like a spiritual idea of like, what do people want? Like what? And it sometimes leads to like profound communicative art. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, I, you know, I can't speak to what Barrett Strong was thinking about, you know, I mean, it's such a beautiful song, but like in Lou's case, I think, the, what Lou learned, like, how do songs work? How do they work? You know, when does the fucking chorus come in? Right. You know, like the one thing is, you know, as far out, you know, and obviously there are examples that defy this definition I'm about to give. But, you know, you listen to the Velvet Underground songs and they are just songs. <laughs> you know, I mean, catchy as hell, even on the yeah. first record, you know, run, run, run. Especially on the first record. Oh, my God. It's yeah. Fatal and... Uh, I'll be your mirror are just such tight little songs and yeah, you know, and um, God, what was the other one that opens with the dun, 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 there she goes. There she goes. Yeah. Killer. Written written by someone with a canny ear. Yeah. You know, it's, um, what the fuck you know, is he doing with metal machine music then? <laughs> I think he knows he knows exactly what that, he's doing. You know, I he, think that's he, double. I think it's that doubleness again. Yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, you know Sally can't dance is uh, is run 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 and there she goes and metal machine music is uh, European Sun and Black Angels death song. But yeah, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, it's it's funny. It we were talking earlier about it kind of buying him time, like credibility and time. And I think that that's really an interesting uh, just tunnel to go down where um, the next thing that Lou will put out after this is Coney Island Baby, which is one of his sweetest and most, you know, it has nothing of, it's like a whole record uh, where he explores a lot of that more um, tender side. Absolutely. The the title track at the end is like one of the most strikingly just like direct and unvarnished kind of looks at like Lou Reed, the human, like the emotional human being that he ever committed to tape, basically. Beautiful song. And and it's it seems like his career to me is a war or a a contest. And then between these two forces and eventually it's actually like a marriage of those things, of right. those two forces. You know, look, to the day he died, Lou's favorite music was, was um, doo-wop. Right. You know, yeah. and uh, I mean, talk about sentimentality, you know, and um, if you, you know, when I was giving readings for my book, you know, I tried to mix it up, but, you know, I was doing a lot of them and I wanted to make them good. And I found the passage I would read most often was was the section about uh, Coney Island Baby and Rachel, you know, because I felt like that's where kind of Lou's emotional heart was, you know. But somehow in the middle of that, you know, you know, you get this kind of 
self-lacerating, you know, like just remember that the city is a funny place. It's something like a circus or a sewer. Right. You know, I mean, there's a kind of, you know, I want to play football for the coach. He had such a complicated relationship with his father, you know, oh, man. and, and searched to replace that figure in his life, you know, um, even though, you know, like I, one of the great revelations of this book, I mean, to me and in, in the course of writing it was, you know, I was like, you know, operating out of Lou's um, framework from interviews and stuff like that. And like, I remember I would talk to people and say like, yeah, like Lou's father was like a fucking jerk. And, and like Lou's father was a really nice guy. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, like he, you know, like he didn't get Lou. And, you know, obviously there's the whole issue of. Um, the, Electroshock. Yeah. Which, you know, was very common in those days. Right. You know? That was not like some kind of crazy choice, you know. And, you know, as good Jewish parents, you know, they were told to do it by a doctor and mm -hmm. they did it, you know. And, but, you know, that wanting to play football for the coach, wanting to meet the standard of, you know, you know, this, this kind of masculine guide, you know, this kind of thing, such a, it was such a strong part of Lou. Um, you know, at the same time as like, who was more rebellious against all that than he was. Right. You know, that's, there's a line. I mean, the last song on Sally can't dance too strikes me as having similar territory because Billy. Billy, where it's about a friendship between the narrator who is sort of a fuck up, um, dropout and the, the golden boy who goes, uh, who's like the valedictorian and does great in school and then goes to the army and he keeps saying, I don't know which one of us is the fool. Uh, There's, you know, even lose sexuality, you know, which is so complicated. I remember one morning, you know, I gave, I was, I went out to Los Angeles to do um, an interview about the book. It was a public interview. I was being interviewed, you know, in front of an audience. I was talking about Lou and um, his sexuality you know, trying to be respectful of all of its aspects and, you know, and these days, you know, inevitably getting one or another part of it wrong, you know, or at least in somebody's too, because like one of a friend of mine out there who is gay and, you know, phoned me up like the next morning and was saying, you know, look, I really enjoyed your thing, but like Lou was gay and like, you should say he was gay. Like, like he was claiming him for the gay community, mm. you know, like, and, you know, kind of gave me a little bit of a lecture, like, you know, what the fuck are you, you know, playing around with all of this kind of, you know, pseudo complexity, you know, when the fucking guy was gay, you know, like just, all right. So I you know I'm thinking about that. And then I was having lunch that day with, um, Lou's college girlfriend, um, his name I can't remember right this minute, but um, you know, uh, you know, he sings her name, and you know, like you know, she's the subject of uh, pale blue eyes. And anyway, 
you know, I was talking to her, you know, and I just said, God, you know, it was like really wild, you know, I, um, you know, I got this call this morning and it was a little upsetting, you know, I, you know, I did this thing last night, you know, I think she had been there, you know, and said, well, you know, because Lou wasn't gay. Because there's no way Lou was gay. Right. You know, and like, you know, you could say, well, the woman would think he wasn't gay and the guy would think he was gay, you know, like, but it went far deeper than that. Mm -hmm. You know, his friend, Aaron Claremont, you know, went to Syracuse with him and, you know, stayed friends with him and would, you know, go tour sex clubs with him and whatnot. Yeah, just that she was very dismissive of the idea that he was gay. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they all admitted that he had sex with men, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which would seem to be a, you know, kind of a giveaway. But like, you know, but, you know, as far as they were concerned, his ultimate um, emotional attraction was to women. And, I, you know, I ultimately came to feel that that was true. Right. You know? Yeah, Lou, you know has always struck me and I think you get a lot of this from from your book obviously is someone who like I mean you can think about it you know on a personal level with towards the sexuality or you know on on an artistic level towards you know the the work that he's creating as someone who like has so many different sides to him so many different facets and chooses to reveal different parts of that to different people depending on what circumstance he finds himself in and so to your friend for instance who you know was was claiming him as you know a gay man uh, he might he might see that facet of Lou or, you know, someone else, you know, who Lou was familiar with uh, at the time, you know, might see that facet of him at the Anvil or something. Um, and yet his college girlfriend might see, you know, the complete opposite sort of thing, just the same way that, you know, uh, uh, RCA executives might see Metal Machine Music one year and Coney Island Baby the next year. And like this, this, um, I, I feel like there's something, you know, kind of uh, like that kind of gets to the core of the guy at the end of the day. Like his, his Absolutely. something satisfying to him and, and sort of a project or, or a North Star uh, of his was just being able to be so many different people to so many different people throughout his entire life, you know, in all these different contexts. I mean, I think it, I think it, there, there's something kind of um, perfect about not really having a, a specific kind of like black ink you know, a bulletproof, you know, way to describe his sexuality or, you know, the kind of music that he makes as a rock and roller, um, you know, to, uh, to bring it back to metal machine music. First of all, I think that was an excellent summary, but also I think um, wherever he was at a particular moment is exactly where he was. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't thinking, oh, t- when he was making metal machine music, he wasn't thinking, oh, okay, my next record, I'm going to do Coney Island Baby. He was doing metal machine music and right. was completely there. And, um, you know, I'm certain that 
you know, in his sexual life, he was like that. And, you know, probably in other aspects of his life, he was like that. It's a yeah. very chaotic way to live to be that present with what you're doing. <laughs> it turns out it's no connection whatsoever to where he was yesterday or where he would be tomorrow. It's just to, it's right. It's this second. It's right now. But there's an intensity to that, and he brings it to the music. It's great to think. I mean, I feel this record holds up in ways that are surprising because you get that impression if you spend some more time with it. That, it, that it, it's something that is the product of a kind of passion rather than just turning on guitars. Yeah, and I totally, yeah, to just since we, we've spent an hour and 15 minutes at this point and have barely talked about the music, just yeah, to, 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 to give it to give it a, a brief note here at the very end, I just like listening to, I've listened to it like two or three times just I've been today. listening to it the whole time, by the way. You're a, you're a psycho. Um, really? Wow, we've been talking. <laughs> very, very low volume. It's just like a gentle, like hum. Yeah, it's, it's nice. Like, you're, it's you're, so great. Your brain Maybe is liquidating. Maybe I should put the, the whole thing, I'll just do it under we, the they whole can't, episode. No, we can't. We can't do that on this one. <laughs> um, I, fa- I have found the music, just returning to it today and, you know, recently since we got this on the books, I've, I found it strangely kind of moving and like, you know, like emotionally affecting somehow. And I, and I can't really explain what I mean by that or why I even mean by it or, what, or why I feel that way. But th- there is just like to me this this like searing kind of sense of beauty, I think, in the whole thing. Not only as a, uh, you know, like a, uh, a fuck you, as, as uh, I think Lester Bangs put it as an artistic statement, but also just like literally the product, like just putting it on, like makes me, and it, it, it's, I find it beautiful. You say it's a put it on record in the record. You can just put on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no better. Well, I think that, um, there is a beauty to it. And, you know, one of the aspects, you know, when I mentioned liking the, the CD version of it best, it's like how, you know, the times I found it most satisfying is times I really listened to it, you know, like uh, not while I was doing an interview, for example, or, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever else I might be doing, you know. Uh, but when I just sat and listened to it and, you know, having the volume up and listening to see what you can really hear. And then, you know, when it stops, there's this sense of the world kind of taking shape again. It's mm. almost, you know, I don't want to get too cute here, but it's almost like post-coital, like you're kind mm. of caught up in a moment sure. that is completely absorbing. And then suddenly you're out of it and the world just resumes its shape and you hear the sounds of your apartment or the sounds of the traffic on the West side highway or the, you know, the person who lives next door to you or, you know, the bird flying by your window or whatever it all is, there really is a kind of element of reintroducing you to the, to the sounds of your world because it itself is so all encompassing while it's playing Mm. And it's gripping, but then finally, when it releases you, you have a renewed relationship with the sonic world around you, and uh, you know that's an achievement. Couldn't put it any better than that uh, ourselves. I think that's probably a great place, uh, a great place to to leave it. Um, 
do you have any uh, do you have any plugs any uh, anything that uh, you want the folks out there to look out for anything besides the book itself Lou Reed a life go buy it somewhere no I would you know I'm still out there running I don't have a big project coming out uh, so yeah go check out the Lou Reed book Lou Reed a life by Anthony DeCurtis published <laughs> Brown I think you'll enjoy it uh, you know it's had a it's had a good life and continues to uh, to reach people. So I'm, it's I'm, a very rich text and something that uh, we certainly could not be doing this show uh, without. Uh, yeah, to, be, no uh, to be quite frank, we will <laughs> continue to quote from it uh, extensively if we have your oh, permission. I'm very, I'm very deeply flattered. And this was a great pleasure, by the way. You know, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. We really yeah. appreciate it. I, I was a little worried, you know, <laughs> how are we, we going to get, because we, talk, we uh, how, how are we going to talk about this record? You mean? Yeah. What you said at the beginning of this, like, you know, your, your fixation on, uh, on like, you know, the lyrics, the literature of the music, like well, we, we find ourselves in that position as well coming from two years of talking about Bob Dylan. <laughs> I, I'm sure you can understand. Um, well, we cracked yet, the code, Ian. Yeah, it's that we, it's, the trick is to not talk about the record that much. Right. Exactly. <laughs> talk about everything outside of it. Well, you know, the thing is, you know, Again, you know, you don't want to get too cute, you know, but there is, you know, there is a literary quality if you are a writer to making an album with no words on it. Mm. That is itself a kind of statement. You know, it's not like some jazz guy who's just a great player, you know, can make a very beautiful record, but it would not necessarily be literary. Whereas Lou making an instrumental album you know, he's you, set that precedent. Yes, you you know he's defined himself as a literary artist, and you're almost obligated to at least explore that possibility. Um, and so, you know, that's another element of, of what this album is. That I think, you know, the more adventurous of your listeners, you know, maybe will find there if they they decide to take the dive. Absolutely. Uh, most important question: uh, we, we assign all of the records we discuss a uh, an objective, uh, very uh, accurate rating uh, between one and three stars, just like the Michelin Guide. Do you have a Do you have a three star rating for Metal Machine Music? Um, three being the best. Three being yeah. The best. Three being the best. No half stars. Uh, I would give it a three. Yeah. Me- Fantastic. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I think it's that important. You know, it, it, it only gets more important. And that's, you know, if we were talking about this in 1975 and trying to sort our way through it, I might feel differently. But, you know, here we are, whatever it is, almost 50 years later, um, you know, a record that survives that much. And, you know, three, you know, pretty smart people who have plenty of other things they could be doing, you know, very pleasurably spend, you know, well over an hour having a pretty deep conversation about an album. You know, that's a three-star record. It's got to gotta have something going for it. No question. That's, that's what a three-star record is. Yeah. It's it's also, what what else have we given three stars, Ian, though? Uh, saved by Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> also important. Uh, it is a, that is an important record. It's it, yeah, it, it is. It's, We're always right. We're just not, we never miss. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, well, thank you once again uh, for joining us, Anthony. Um, folks out there, uh, we'll put some links in the uh, episode description. I think you've got a Twitter account. We'll send them uh, to to buy the book as well. Uh, would love to have you back uh, as well. Anytime. Yeah, uh, anytime. You got oh, uh, years of Lou Reed knowledge to drop on us. So uh, uh, this is you know, barely scratched the surface. Please don't hesitate to call on me. Uh, absolutely. I'd be happy to do it. Joker myth.